unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. What kind of world power does India want to be? Few questions have been asked as often or as intensely since India's economic takeoff in the early 1990s and the corresponding rise in its foreign policy ambitions. Many of our intellectual debates seek answers to this question by looking back to the dawn of independence in 1947. A new book, To Raise a Fallen People, How 19th Century Indians Saw Their World and Shaped Ours, invites readers to look even further back to the oft-forgotten, raucous debates of the 19th century. The editor of this new volume is Rahul Sagar, a professor of political science at NYU Abu Dhabi. To Raise a Fallen People is the first of two books Rahul is releasing this year. To talk more about his ideas, Rahul joins me on the line from Abu Dhabi. Rahul, congratulations on the multiple books. Thanks, Milan. It's been a long time coming. Um, so we, hopefully you will come back to talk about the second book, and I want to ask you about that towards the end, but let's focus uh, on the on the issue at hand. Um, you, you mentioned of, in the preface that this book was nearly two decades in the making, right? And if we kind of go back into the time machine uh, several decades ago, India was embarking on a series of, you know, really transformative changes, right? We saw that with respect to economic liberalization and opening up of the political system. Obviously, its foreign policy orientation began to shift. Its views on the world began to evolve. And, you know, these are all kind of future-oriented changes, revolutions, some would call them. But you decided to kind of look further backward into Indian history. You know, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what was going through your head at this moment. It's a really good question. I I think the, the, the reason I turned backwards was because when you try and ask people for justifications, why is something a good idea? Um... Very rarely do you find policymakers simply jumping into the unknown. They tend to use ideas and impressions from the past to structure their thinking. So one of the common themes in the 90s was, this is a radical break. We are fundamentally changing how we approach the world, whether it's relationships with uh, the former Soviet Union or Israel or the U.S., um, it's it's time to break with the past. And I found that puzzling because just at the same time as we say India had been uh, cautious, conservative, non-aligned during the Cold War, we had these classics in Indian thought, all of which talked about politics being cutthroat and dangerous, uh, where uh, the big fish eat the small. And so was it such a change or were we actually returning to something that we had had been previously. And so I I began puzzled, um, wondering whether the change was really as significant or as substantial as people made it out to be. And I think it's worth pausing for a second to talk about the corpus of material that you unearthed for this study. Uh, it forms the basis of this really terrific online archive that you've created, um, and so maybe we can just pause and kind of talk about method for a second, right? I mean, you're excavating these 19th century debates about India's role in the world stage. Um, tell us about sort of what you uncovered and, and and maybe as part of that, why the 19th century specifically? 
Yeah, um, it's a good question. I When I started out, I didn't have a clear sense of where I was going or what I was going to find, which is often the case with archival work. I began by thinking to myself, I want to understand um, whether the change has been as significant as it is. And I would then go around speaking to serving um, foreign um, service officials, uh, diplomats uh, from other countries who'd been in India a while, um, you know, interviewed a person like John Galbraith to try and understand how he thought India had changed over time. And what I found was there was this frequent reference to predictable, obvious names. And those few figures were seen as structuring all of our thoughts. And that seemed very unlike what I realized was the case in, say, the US or the UK. I'd spent most of my graduate training studying, as we sometimes call it, Western political thought, which is more fine-grained, more detailed, where the flows and currents and changes in ideas, it's much more like waves. They, they're, they're going in all sorts of different directions. There's ups and downs. Uh, and there aren't just these few nodal figures, you know, bright lights shining in a dark uh, night sky. Uh, it's constellations. And so I said, well, if this is how it is in Western political thought, why do we not have anything similar when we think about India? Were there really no people thinking about these kinds of questions? How could that be? Uh, people tell us that Indians are, you know, the argumentative Indian. How can that be that they weren't argumentative in the 19th century and they were suddenly argumentative in the, you know, 1950s and 60s? And so I sort of began looking around, not with a very clear idea of what I was going to find or even what I should look for, and a series of fortuitous conversations, some discoveries, some time in the archive made me realize that there was actually a large body. In the beginning, it seemed like a large but not maybe overwhelming body of literature um, in books that had been uh, published only you know, in small quantities and had been scattered around the world and were hard to find, and I should go look for them. Um, and so you know, I went some ways towards finding things, but, you know, again, it was 30, 40 books, um, and many of those figures were forgotten. And then these fortuitous conversations and discoveries made me realize that actually the bulk of the work in thinking about India's place in the world or just Indian politics itself domestically was in periodicals and newspapers because these were easier to print and publish. They were easier to distribute and sell. They cost less, so they were, uh, and they could be subscribed to by libraries and read by many, many people. And when I discovered these periodicals, I realized this is it. This is the gold mine, and it's not a few. It's not forty, fifty. It's not a hundred. It's not a thousand. But what I eventually ended up finding after about seven years of work on this, five years of concentrated work on this, uh, what we've, what I found is three hundred fifty thousand to four hundred thousand pieces, of which. The number of pieces that talk about international politics are maybe about twenty-five to thirty thousand, and talk about—I mean, seriously talk about, think about, reflect, and 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 uh, debate. So it's been a slow uh, process where I felt my way, you know, felt the stones as I've crossed the stream, um, and so I can't claim prescience or I can't claim that I, I knew exactly what I was going to, what I was doing, or what I'd find, but I got very lucky. And Rahul, of this huge amount of three hundred and fifty thousand plus materials, uh, you know, was this dominated by things that were written in the English language? Yes, yeah, actually, that's a very good point. Something I didn't didn't um, say clearly enough that the the three hundred fifty thousand pieces, or now roughly four hundred and five uh, periodicals that. Um, 
I found and 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 made available or searchable, uh, these were all in English. And the 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 reason I focused on English language texts and the reason that there are so many English language periodicals is that they grew out of um, English public culture. They grew out of uh, a, a sense of wanting to um, mimic what Indians admired after they started studying English. They started studying English under English scholars and professors and administrators who were keen subscribers and contributors to English periodicals. That was, if you study 19th century England, the life, intellectual life of 19th century England is found in periodicals. Everyone from Mill to Bentham, you know, the figures everyone's familiar with, through to figures that were popular or famous then and are now forgotten, all of them wrote eagerly in journals. And that's what everyone read and circulated amongst themselves. So if you were an English officer out in India, you waited eagerly for the most recent journal to come so you could keep up with debates uh, in, in, in the motherland or in the home country. And so um, Indians studying under these figures read these journals and thought, well, this is marvelous. You can actually debate these kinds of ideas. You can have differing positions. Disagreement is perfectly fine and acceptable. And this is how you develop arguments. This is how you develop positions and defend them. And so first, Indians tried to contribute to these journals. They were moderately successful. The journals were always doubtful about whether Indians could write well enough. When Indians wrote well enough, they were doubtful there'd be enough of an audience because English officers didn't really want to know about what Indians had to say. They wanted to know about what the English view on things was. And so gradually by the 1840s and 50s, Indians begin publishing their own journals in English. When this happens in English, naturally, scholars and writers and uh, you know, literary figures in the vernaculars start then producing their own journals because they're excluded from the conversation in English because they haven't you know, either studied English or they aren't comfortable enough with it. And so you get this massive explosion in the 1860s and 70s of vernacular periodicals. You know, one of the things that you mention up near the top of the book is that until very recently, uh, many experts of Indian foreign policy had basically concluded and felt very confident in saying that, you know, Indians really haven't thought very much about international relations, right, uh, in a quote-unquote systematic and sustained way. And, you know, I'm curious, you know, you read that and it's sort of jarring because it does seem very patronizing, right, and sort of neo-colonial. But I'm curious, is this something that, uh, a belief that outsiders held, or is this something that Indians themselves felt to be true. It's it's surprising. It's both. You know, one would think from that description, we would think it's uh, sort of um, uh, a benign ignorance uh, of, of contemporary Indian history. But Indians themselves, you know, the, the figure that this view is most commonly associated with, um, George Tanham, who's, who's always described by his contemporaries as a, as a marvelous, very thoughtful, very sensitive uh, person, um, you know, when he came out to India and, and spent uh, about a year on a RAND study thinking uh, thinking about India's strategic culture and met pretty much everyone who was out and around then, amongst the people that led him to this view were figures like K. Subramaniam and Jaswan Singh, the key figures in Indian um, strategic thinking, because they themselves lacked access to the kinds of materials I was describing. In most of these cases where I found these periodicals or I found books, no one had issued them in 
in the record of that library because they had been deposited there sometime in the 1910s, 1920s, and then forgotten after after independence. Um, and so there's this big unfortunate epistemic break that's basically meant people have a very, very, even Indians, have a very weak or limited sense um, of what happened before the 1920s. Um, really, modern Indian history, according to most Indians, begins around 1905 with the partition of Bengal and the beginning of political protests and opposition and turmoil. What happens before then is some people come together and they create the Congress and, you know, for a while they give some speeches and write some petitions, you know, blah, blah, who cares about that stuff. The action begins in 1905 and that's all we need to really know. Uh, 1920, Gandhi's on the scene, then the fun begins. Who cares about what happened before that? Or not? It, maybe I shouldn't be dismissive, not who cares, but who knows what happened before that? It was important, surely. You, know, you write that the essays that you uncovered for this volume reveal the foundations of what you call India's half-hearted approach to great power politics. And I thought that choice of word, half-hearted, was intriguing. Um, because after all, there has been, and you document this, a very significant locally driven indigenous debate about India's place in the world. And so clearly there is not one Indian standard view about what India's role in the world should be. Uh, but is that the same as half-hearted? I'm trying to figure out, you know, what's the meaning behind the use of that phrase? The half-heartedness uh, that I discuss in the book is about whether India should then be like other powers that these people are writing about. So it's one thing to say, you know, I don't know what to think about what Japan is doing in the 1930s or when Japan invades Korea. What should I make of this? Uh, is this normal? Is this what all great powers do? Or is this something that, you know, we should criticize and not try and follow? So this half-heartedness is, is, is something very distinctive uh, to India in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. If you would ask someone today what makes India ambivalent about great power, they will say it's our Gandhian legacy. It's this idea of nonviolence uh, that through a whole set of figures, Gandhi and after, um, are indicative of our uncertainty or our unease in, in engaging with power politics or engaging with uh, building up capabilities or being willing to uh, fight, uh, uh, God forbid, conquer, those kinds of things. So we tend to say, well, you know, yeah, we have, Indians have been ambivalent about this. There's been this change, the thing that we were talking about right at the very start of the show, there's been this change. Indians were previously more inclined towards thinking about international politics in a more nonviolent, pacif uh, um, uh, as pacifists, uh, and, and now are becoming more, quote-unquote, realistic about how they, how they feel. If you look at the 19th century, you realize that Gandhi actually comes quite late to this debate. The beginnings of this half-heartedness in India are actually European. It's a very strange story. Um, as, the, uh, as, as the scholars that have been studying India, India's classics and Indian languages, particularly Sanskrit, the people that we now sometimes describe as the Orientalists, as they start to come under attack in the 1860s and 70s, they're challenged. What's the point of studying linguistics? Why should we care about how close Sanskrit is to, to, to Latin? You know, the stuff you're looking at is pointless. We're in the age of empire. What matters is commerce, trade, power, you know, militaries, those kinds of things. And the Orientalists 
who are losing funding, losing, losing positions, losing uh, audiences have to justify themselves. And they say, well, the reason we should care about these things is because India holds the answer to life's great questions. Uh, you can conquer, you can control, you can dominate, but at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself the question, why am I doing this? And if you want the answer to the great metaphysical question, why, you have to turn to India and you have to turn to Indian philosophy. And so what's distinctive about India, what India will give the world is the answer to these deep metaphysical questions. Don't, don't turn to India and worry about, you know, uh, politics or empire building or, you know, great commercial uh, achievements. No, India will answer philosophical questions. And in one of these great twists of, of, of history, the answer that Orientalists give in places like Oxford and London and Cambridge to defend themselves get read about in places like Bengal and Bombay and Lahore and Delhi. And people say, hey, you know, that's, that's, that's a great idea, actually. That is our distinctive signature. We don't have any empire. We don't govern ourselves. We don't uh, have any control over any industries. We're, um, you know, relegated on the, on the world stage. But if everyone realizes that we are the, the holders of this great philosophical truth, uh, then we'll have something to show for ourselves. And you get suddenly, starting in the 1870s, early 1880s, out of almost nowhere, suddenly this profusion of um, philosophical reflection that India is really intended to be uh, this great philosophical power on the world stage. It's never going to conquer. It's not interested in empire, which runs completely contrary even to 19th century history. In the early part of the 19th century, Indians are fighting, whether it's, you know, Gwalior or Holkar or Indore or uh, Travancore, they're all engaged in really intense, very bloody battles with the British. And in just the, a matter of 30, 40 years, people pretend as if all of this has just disappeared. And that's the beginning of this half-heartedness that I try and trace out in the book to say it, we underestimate how old the story is, old relatively speaking. It doesn't begin with Gandhi, it begins a half century before him. And we underestimate how deep it seeps into the Indian public discourse that what, India, what makes India distinctive is this spiritual approach to world politics. And the legacy of that is this anxiety or uncertainty um, you know, should we develop nuclear weapons? Should we say we've developed it? Should we say we might use it? Uh, it's always retiring, reticent, and embarrassed. And so I, I, that's what I try and bring out, where that, where that comes from. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. You know, Rahul, many of us who are students of Indian politics have been taught that there is a developmental angle to the story, right? Which is the desire in the early part of the 20th century to say, look, we've really got to focus on um, our huge developmental agenda at home. Uh, we have, you know, uh, abject poverty, um, alarming rates of illiteracy, so many social, you know, rigid inequalities we have to work ourselves out of, a sprawling geography. Let's not get caught up 
in great power politics, right? It, it sort of reminds me of, you know, Washington's famous farewell address, right? Of, you know, beware of foreign entanglements, right? We've got to focus on home. I mean, was there not a developmental basis for some of these arguments to say, look, uh, the agenda here is so big, um, uh, let sort of, you know, great power politics be be fought over by by someone else? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, I think if we think about the American story in, in that period between the 1780s and the early 1800s, if you read the Federalist Papers, if you read Hamilton, he's absolutely sure that America is intended for greatness. Um, and it is. That's what the founding generation are very clear about. For them, keeping Europe at bay and avoiding foreign entanglements are a stepping stone to greatness. But they're not an end in themselves. It's a means. And so what's puzzling about that developmental story in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s is it would make sense to say, let's avoid conflict, let's focus on development because we want to be strong, as opposed to let's avoid foreign entanglements because we want to be this specific power. We want to be this, this country that you know, helps mediate and resolve tensions. Uh, America didn't uh, do that. And when, you know, when piracy came around, they did what they had to do to protect themselves and so on. Uh, you know, it's not too far away from Monroe. So um, it's a hop, skip and a jump. So it doesn't, it, you know, um, reticence or um, modesty in international politics can be extremely important. If you read the Indian classics, they are always conservative. Conserve power, use statecraft, use intrigue, use manipulation, avoid frontal conflict unless it's necessary, but prepare, always prepare, constantly prepare. And what's odd about that story when we talk about the developmental stories, it's not put in that way. Rahul, the, the book covers multiple themes, uh, you know, the value of English language education, uh, the imperative foreign travel, uh, you know, whether free trade is a good thing or not, what India can teach the West, <laughs> what the West can teach India. Um, so, so we can't cover all of them, but, but maybe we'll just pick a couple of highlights, starting with education. Uh, I just want to quote something that Madhava Rao uh, wrote uh, in 1846, talking about education and the need to invest in it and saying, a general spread of education alone will rouse India from the indolence which has lulled her for ages in a kind of lethargic slumber and will launch her in the progressive stream of improvement to compete for superiority with those nations which are fast advancing their course. Right, Very eloquent words on the need for education. What was Rao arguing against? In other words, you know, who was on the other side of this debate saying, you know, this isn't really so important, this isn't the path to national greatness? You know, tell us a little bit about the context in which he was writing. Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, it's a it's a it's a complicated context in, in in at least two ways. There's there's two different audiences. I think he he he's addressing himself to. He's not so much arguing, I think, against a position as he's arguing against um, a lack of interest, uh, a, mm. a, you know, a lack of seriousness. Sort of so complacency. One, complacency, that's right. That's the, that's the better term. One set of figures at this time are the old native state elites, the, which was almost all of India, right, before, because uh, the, the East India Company's holdings before this period are, 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 are fairly marginal. Um, their, their real great growth occurs you know, between the 1780s and the 1820s. So Madhava Rao is writing shortly after this when he's surrounded by these shell-shocked courtiers for whom 
it's a waiting game. They think, well, you know, any day now, there will be something like the mutiny, which comes in 1857, but is much smaller than they might have anticipated. Um, and they think any day now we have, you know, we will try and regain the old ways. Um, you know, the, the, the Maratha powers in central India, they, you know, they just didn't cooperate or coordinate enough, but a chance will come and the, the old world will return. So there's that sort of complacency. And the other kind of complacency are the, you wouldn't really call them a middle class, but the sort of people that are engaged partly in commerce, partly in trade, and, and partly in low-level menial service, working as munshis and peons in, in, in East Indian company offices. And their view is, well, we've got a new lord, so you just serve the new lord. Why do you have to try and be like them? <laughs> Why do you have to try and study them and learn these new languages, change the caste system, turn everything up on its head? Why are we studying science? Who do we think we're fooling? Do you think we can be really like them? So it's these two kinds of complacency of the old order and of the, of the uh, beaten down uh, uh, sort of ordinary uh, semi-intelligent, you know, average citizen or average subject who just wants to get on with their life, who's got a very transactional relationship with the British. And to both these people, he's trying to say, look, education is important, not just because you want to get promoted up. Um, in fact, Madhva Rao is one of the very first people to graduate. And he's one of the very first people to choose not to join the East India Company. He's offered subordinate positions, but he decides, you know, I don't want to be a munshi. I want to be someone who can actually make a change on the ground. So one of the other things I wanted to ask you about was this question of foreign travel, which I have to admit I'd never thought about. I didn't realize it was a taboo subject in the 19th century India. There's this whole debate about whether Hindus should travel uh, abroad. Sort of, you know, what was this? Was it just a kind of nationalist kind of defense that we don't want to get sort of contaminated by sort of what's out there in the big bad world? Or is there something deeper going on? The reason why someone, whether they're Hindu or they're Muslim, or in some cases even Parsi, why they will not travel is, is, is as I was saying, there's a range of things behind it. One, it's dangerous. Um, sea travel before the 19th century is, 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 is long, arduous, uh, painful, um, and, um, uh, the journeys involved, particularly in heading towards Europe, are you know they really do require someone that is uh, got the mindset of a sailor, of an adventurer. Uh, the other, which is, you'll get some people always that are adventurous, but then comes the second problem, which is concerns about diet and conduct and social acceptability. So the the the, the weight of orthodoxy, and that's why it applies to Muslims as much as Hindus. There are concerns about diet. Uh, what will you eat on the ship? Who will you eat next to? Who will you sleep with or sleep next to? Who, what will you touch and what will you drink? If the sailors on a ship drink, you know, how do I know you won't drink? How do I know in a sea, you know, in a horrible uh, storm, you won't suddenly, you get letters that describe this. How do I know, you know, the person will say I was on a storm, but I assure you, I did not drink. I did not fear. I did not panic. I did not change my religion. I did not join the others in praying to Christ to save me. You get all of these sorts of descriptions in these letters once people actually finally make it uh, to Europe or, or in, in, in a few rare cases to America. So there are these, these range of concerns, the cost, the danger, the, 
the, the lack of communication, right? There's very little communication between Europe and India in the early 19th century. It can take two to three weeks for a letter to get across, sometimes not at all if the, if the ship itself carrying the letter is lost or delayed. So all of this makes people very anxious about travel. The, what I focus on on this taboo is about the orthodoxy part of it, which makes people say that men and women, it's, you know, women it's very difficult in the early part of the 19th century, but even men should simply not leave. If they leave, when they come back, they should not be accepted because they will have lost caste by doing all sorts of unacceptable, impermissible things while they're abroad. Uh, and when they come back, they must go through immense penances uh, in order to cleanse themselves and purify themselves. And of course, the very orthodox say there's nothing you can do to cleanse this, this horrible uh, sin that you committed by eating or drinking the wrong kinds of things or mixing with the wrong kinds of people, etc. So that's the taboo. And it takes literally 70 years for people to overcome it. At the beginning of the 19th century, you have five or 10 or 15 Indians in all of England. When they arrive, it's a massive development. I mean, it's reported in newspapers around the country. By the end of the century, you have two or 300 Indians. I mean, so that's a you know pretty substantial rate of growth. By the 1920s, you have thousands. And so that tells you what a significant change occurs in the space of a century um, in how Indians think about the world. And of course, now, as by far and away the most, uh, as, as you know from your work, by far and away the most uh, uh, far-flung diaspora in the world, uh, you know, they've turned that story, they've, they've turned that story on its head. Fascinating. Uh, There's so much more I want to ask you about, but but in the interest of time, I'll keep moving. You know, one of the big takeaways from the book, Rahul, is that Indians have been thinking very carefully, methodically, systematically about international relations well in advance of independence. Um, but we will occasionally get an article or an op-ed comes up every few years uh, by people based inside of India, outside of India, basically saying that India doesn't have a strategic culture and it has to fix that problem. And so I'm wondering if, A, these pieces are just totally off base, or B, they're capturing something real, which is to say we had this era of serious thought and debate and something's been lost along the way that we need to recapture. Um, you know, how do you see this this question? Because I'm sure, you know, as somebody who's in the this field, you encounter it all the time. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good question. It's it is a a, um, a good puzzle. I think we have two extremes uh, in India, and this strategic culture debate talks about the missing middle. So let me explain what I mean by that. I think the average person or the average interested reader, let's put it that way, um, of which there are many in India, um, are interested in international politics, think about it, they watch um, uh, shows or read the newspaper religiously, uh, will listen to podcasts, um, and all of these sorts of things because they are curious, want to be informed and have views uh, on these sorts of things. And at the other end, we have the, the senior leadership who have, in one way or another, performed remarkably well over the last um, 75 years and, and before that in trying to navigate a very difficult world. We can always quibble over which policy was chosen for what reason, but I don't think anyone would ever say that any of India's political leadership was unthinking in what it did. It thought very carefully about uh, the chessboard and what pieces would make sense uh, in terms of where they wanted to get to. So. 
these two ends of the story, I think, are quite clear. No one would, would doubt them. It's the middle bit. It's the institutionalization of thinking about international politics that we really, I think, lacked and that we worry about. And it's an, it's an interesting question. It's one I don't have a complete answer to yet. How much institutionalization do we need for there to, for there to be a, a well-functioning strategic culture? Um, the U.S. has a very highly developed, perhaps the most highly developed uh, set of institutions, but that hasn't stopped it from making terrible decisions, um, some brilliant decisions, but also some terrible decisions. So it doesn't seem like institutionalization simply then means you have a strategic culture, because you can end up with institutionalization leading to groupthink. So strategic, strategic culture means probably, as I said, I'm still like others, still grappling with this. I think it means the ability to think clearly uh, and openly uh, and critically about your interests and the interests of other countries around you, the actors with whom you have to in engage uh, and, and interact with. And that must require some more institutionalization than India has, but it can't just be institutionalization. The culture part of it, I think, refers to a way of thinking, a way of being. And that's what I worry about, say, in the US, that we have institutions, but not, a, not as open a culture about thinking, uh, not as much a readiness to um, uh, think about our own mistakes or think anthropologically in a sensitive way about other places and, and the choices they face. Um, so that's a shortcoming on the U.S. side. I think on the Indian side, that's actually somewhat more of a strength. There's more of an ability to put themselves in other people's shoes, but institutionally they're weaker. So you didn't ask for an India-U.S. Yeah, contrast. No, but it's, it's fascinating. And, and I think, you know, somebody who's normally based in the U.S., also one goes against the um, orthodoxy potentially at great cost to their own personal career, right? Uh, I mean, you see, you know, alternative narratives on, you know, Russia, Ukraine, for instance, right? And 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 people are sort of shunned, right? And so that sort of free exchange, free thought, um, you know, does I think uh, come under duress, particularly during times of crisis, right? Um, you know, your Russia Ukraine is is maybe a good place to end um, because, in conjunction with the release of your book, you authored an op-ed in the Times of India, um, in which you kind of use this debate that we're having about India's stance on the current crisis to to, to make a point that's linked very much to the book. Um, you know, you talk about this kind of recurring, almost cyclical pattern in Western discourse. Um, and, and just to quote you for a second, you say, where India is berated for deviating from civilized norms and then berated once more for having the temerity to remind others of their own deviation from civilized norms, end quote. Um, and what I found interesting about this is that, you know, you sort of conclude that, you know, as Indians, we may be tempted to shrug off these frictions. They're part and parcel of, you know, the rough and tumble of international politics, but we shouldn't shrug them off. Why shouldn't Indians shrug them off? I think the reason is, uh, is as follows. If India wants to take part in great power politics, as it's increasingly making clear that it's now willing and ready to do, it has to set the terms of debate and discussion. Those terms cannot be unequal. 
those terms can't be hierarchical. Um, we cannot have, uh, or we should not have, uh, a situation in which um, India is the taker of norms uh, and 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 simply uh, sits back with its views, its ideas, its concerns and criticism uh, shushed or shunned. Uh, it needs to be allowed to speak and it should speak. And that's one of the, the, the great virtues of uh, particularly the last five years is a more forthright stance, uh, which says we have these views, we have these interests, and we're going to articulate them. And you're not going to stop us from doing that. And I think that's very important. This is not a nationalist or uh, not a chest-thumping sort of concern. It's not we are greater than you or we are better than you. It's whatever we're going to do uh, on the international stage, uh, whether it's the Quad or whether it's a broader international arrangement like the UN, um, India's views should be articulated, need to be heard, need to be respected as, as an equal voice. Um, and, um, and I think that's important. It's, a, it's important for India to move away from that defensive position where we are the moral voice in the background, harping away on, on issues and, and being, uh, being irritating or annoying. It's better to talk the language of interests. Uh, it's more useful, more helpful. And as we do that, as India does that, it's, I think, also then important for the West in particular to take that seriously. Uh, I, I don't want to let you go without uh, telling us a little bit about another project that you're working on. As I mentioned at the top, you have a second book coming out. Uh, we'll hopefully have you back to talk about that book in detail. But tell us a little bit about what you have in store for for readers, uh, at hopefully in a couple of months. Yeah, I'd love to come back to talk about that. That's uh, my... my uh my sort of sweetheart project. It's the thing that I've been working on for a very long time. Um, I became very interested in Madhava Rao by sheer accident. I ended up finding about him in the most quaintly titled periodical you can imagine called Feudatory and Zamindari India. <laughs> it, it, it just flies off the shelf, I'm sure. It did at the time, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, what this, what this journal uh, was about was presenting the voice and the views and the interests and concerns of native India, of Indian India. Um, and this term, feudatory India was the legal term. That was what the British called these states. They were the feudatories of British India. Uh, only now, in the very late 20th uh, century, we've begun, since then, we've begun to refer to them as princely states. But back then, they were, they were often called Indian India. And so... I find this journal, and I find in this journal these two or three remarkable essays by this person called Madhva Rao. He's long, long gone. He's deceased. These, this journal was published in 1920. He died in uh, the late, uh, in 1893. And so I'm thinking, you know, who's published this? Where did this stuff come from? Who is this guy? Because he writes marvelously. And I start searching, uh, uh, you know, to see what else I can find about him. I quickly realized, as I said at the beginning, how little I knew about 19th century India. He turns out to be the single most important Indian politician um, of, the, of the 19th century. He's the Devan or the, the, the prime minister of three princely states. And just to give you one tiny little statistic of the kinds of things he managed to do in his time, he, when he became the Devan of Travancore, which is the predecessor of modern-day Kerala, he was confronted with a state that needed to rapidly modernize both its so social norms and its economy. It, there was slavery was widespread, the caste system was oppressive, poverty was widespread. 
And one of the very first things he did was transfer all publicly held land from the, the royal, from, from the royal sort of chest, but also from other parts of the aristocracy to the cultivators who cultivated the land. So massive land redistribution. This happened three years before the Meiji Revolution. So when we talk about the, the success of Kerala, or we talk about Japan and how, you know, how important the Meiji were to Japan, Madhava Rao did it three years before. This is not a competition, but to say, this is the kind of vision this person had. Um, and so it's to him, I think, in my view, and others, Robin Jeffrey, I think, would say similar things, Manu Pillay, that it's to a figure like this that modern-day Kerala owes many of its social and other economic indicators. And as I got more interested in Madhava Rao, it turned out that he had written a treatise on how rulers should govern. And it was going to be an updated modern version that did away with the more orthodox or conventional or conservative elements of Indian statecraft. It took what was good in them, but discarded what seemed completely um, irrelevant or atrocious in the modern world. I searched very hard, very, very hard, spent many a, many a month in dusty archives, and I found the original manuscript uh, two years ago, two months before the pandemic began. And so I've spent the years of the pandemic cleaning that up, organizing it, fixing it, and it's now being published in, in August. So I would love to come back and talk about it because it is um, a model piece, I think, for modern Indian liberal constitutional government. Well, I have a, a personal interest in this, Rahul, because he went on to serve as the Devan of Baroda. And the book that uh, is forthcoming, it consists of lectures that he gave to Sayaji Rao, who was the Maharaja of Baroda, and I believe the namesake of MS University, if I'm not mistaken, which is my father's alma mater. So, so this is, is all very intriguing to me. Uh, so we look forward to hearing more about this. But uh, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about the current book, To Raise a Fallen People, How 19th Century Indians Saw Their World and Shaped Ours. Really eye-opening look into a period that few of us have thought about, uh, almost none of us have, have read about, um, and, uh, and, and hope that many people pick this book up, Rahul. Uh, it was a delight to, to read, delight to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Milan. I can't wait to be back again. Grantham Asha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. This podcast is an HD Smartcast original and is available on hdsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcasting platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, GrantTheMasha.com. Production assistance comes from Caroline Duckworth, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff J. Pranada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.